Wow, 350 episodes. That's a lot. I know. So should we do something special? An interview? A super long episode? Well, I was thinking that maybe we could take a cue from the major milestone issues of the mid-90s. An overstuffed crossover event? No, pretty much just business as usual. Aw. But with variant covers. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to Special Collectible Episode 350 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. Now, remember, this being a special collectible episode, a milestone, it's going to be worth something someday. That's true, and in fact, it's not just one, because we've got four different covers for this episode. Not only one from David Wynn, our, our regular returning artist, but special variants from Jen Vaughn and Dylan McConus, and a special internet-exclusive sketch cover that you can print out and use for commissions, meeting notes, and grocery lists. This episode is double gatefold, foil-stamped, holographic, and die-cut. And we definitely, definitely recorded too many copies of it. Yeah, so, uh, you know, get a bunch of them. So, yeah, Jay, here we are at episode number 350. Like, I know once you get up there in numbers, the 50s aren't as much of milestones, but, like, still, that's a lot. It's a whole lot. It's honestly, it, it feels like a milestone that the 50s are no longer milestones. Oh, man, a milestone due to the negation of milestones. So this episode coming as it is in the dead middle of our coverage of Onslaught is pretty much going to be a standard one, aside from, you know, being special collectible and clearly worth a lot of money someday, so you definitely want to save it. That said, this is the exact midpoint of Onslaught. This is the end of Phase 1 leading into the beginning of Phase 2, so it, like this episode, is super climactic. Now, I do want to say we're fudging the order of things just a little. There are also Wolverine and Generation X Onslaught tie-ins, or in the case of Generation X, semi-tie-ins, but they're pretty separate from the main plot, until the end at least, and they sort of span Phase 1 and Phase 2, so we're going to cover those separately after we've already started Phase 2. But yeah, this, only a few episodes into Onslaught, is uh, kind of a lot of really big deal stuff happening. I remain surprised by how much I am enjoying the central Onslaught storyline. That's the thing! Like, I remember disliking Onslaught when I first read it uh, a while back, but I also mainlined the entire thing, from the central story to all of the side stories to the only tangential tie-ins, and I don't know that it benefits from that, but if you're focusing on mostly the central stuff, like, there's some solid stuff here. I don't know that I necessarily like the way it all resolves, because... That had more to do with the editorial direction Marvel wanted to go than actual story. But at this point, like, I think there's been a lot more good than bad. Yeah, I remain kind of generally underwhelmed with the side stories. For instance, I think the X-Factor issue we're covering today is is pretty meh. Well, let's be real. This era of X-Factor isn't necessarily the height of the book. Right. But again, the central stuff is really solid, and it's 
feeling legitimately high stakes in ways that I wasn't expecting. Absolutely. Well, listeners, if you're jumping in with this episode, that doesn't seem like a good idea. But nonetheless, let's talk about what happened previously on Onslaught. It is a dark time for mutant kind, and that darkness has not been lost on Professor Charles Xavier, longtime proponent of peaceful coexistence between humans and mutants, and of course, founder and patron of the X-Men. Thanks to Nate Gray messing something up again, Xavier's frustration has been given physical form. Onslaught, a psychic entity with godlike power, who has begun his plan to take over the world from the humans who have caused mutants so much pain. Onslaught's also got some kind of connection to Xavier's longtime frenemy Magneto, but what precisely that is remains a mystery. Onslaught has easily defeated the X-Men, and is now after two of the most powerful mutants on the planet, the aforementioned Nate Gray, X-Man from the Age of Apocalypse, and Fantastic Moppet Franklin Richards, the reality-bending son of Mr. Fantastic and the Invisible Woman, both of the Fantastic Four. The X-Men have teamed up with the Avengers to form a couple of new, mixed teams. One of those teams tracked down Magneto, or at least someone they believed to be Magneto, since Onslaught's Magneto-esque armor and general passion for declamation seemed to implicate the missing villain. But instead, they found Joseph, an amnesiac and de-aged version of Magneto, uh, sort of, who Rogue has taken under her Mississippian wing. Joseph will much later turn out to be a clone, but as far as we know at this point in continuity, he is, as Miles said, just a de-aged Magneto. The other group is rushing to find Franklin Richards before Onslaught does. Meanwhile, X-Factor, that's the US government's sponsored mutant team, has its own issues. Boy, does it ever! Some of them have to do with Onslaught, but man, those guys are a mess. Yeah, one of the worst of those issues is that their old leader Havoc has secretly been kidnapped by Dark Beast, the evil version of Beast from the same Age of Apocalypse from which Nate Gray hails, and the team figured that Havoc just wandered off without leaving a note since he uh, has a habit of doing that. Now, after spending a while impersonating his Earth-616 counterpart and getting really tired of it, Dark Beast is now just officially working for Onslaught, having decided to abandon his, his attempt at an undercover place with the X-Men. Excalibur, Europe's premier mutant team, well, mostly mutants, they're busy with London's ongoing destruction by a subterranean demon, but their boss Moira McTaggart has heard about Onslaught, and is going to be playing a brief but central role as she is the sole holder to the key to the Xavier Protocols. What the hell are those things? Well, let's find out in Excalibur number 100, London's Burning. Written by Warren Ellis, penciled by Casey Jones, Randy Green, and Rob Haynes, inked by Tom Simmons, Jason Martin, Rick Ketchum, and Rob Haynes, colored by Ariane Lenchwek and Jim Hostin, lettered by Richard Starkings and Comacraft, with a wraparound cover, and double-sized interior. So previously in Excalibur... You know what? There is, there is a lot going on in this book, and while we'd originally planned to do this differently, while we were preparing this episode, we realized that it was really going to make the most sense to skip the main team stuff for now and just cover the Onslaught-relevant bits for the moment. Right. In our last Excalibur episode, we covered the first four parts of this five-part story that ends in number 100. We figured we'd save this for when we were covering all the Onslaught tie-ins to sort of show how different books handled tying in. But that Excalibur story is so complex, and 
its climax and resolution are so convoluted that it really needs more space than we could give it here. So we'll be throwing that one in in our next Excalibur episode, which will include the remaining few issues of Warren Ellis's run. And this is actually pretty easy to do, because in terms of the Onslaught tie-in in Excalibur, the Onslaught part and the non-Onslaught part are completely separated. They're an A-plot and a B-plot, and never the two shall meet. The actual Excalibur team is off in London dealing with shady government organizations, murders, you know, the London branch of the Hellfire Club, a large demon, all that fun stuff. Moira McTaggart is left on her own on your island, which means that she's the one hanging out there when some X-Men arrive. Okay, so in this scene, the X-Men show up to tell her about Onslaught, about Professor Xavier having gone evil and lost control of his powers and becoming Onslaught. But we saw in the Onslaught X-Men one-shot that she also found out there. So this is just straight up a continuity problem. But you know what? Whatever. If we're going to pick nits with Onslaught, we'll be here all day. So I'll just say, I really like this scene. She knew that Onslaught was coming. Did she know that Onslaught was Xavier? Uh, you know, that's a good question. I believe so, yes. I believe she got Jean's message, like the ex-traitor message that we first saw in Uncanny 287 in Bishop's Future. Ooh, but we see how that message came through to X-Factor in the X-Factor issue, and it had the same disruption that it did in Bishop's Future, so it wasn't transmitted whole. Okay, so let's just go ahead and assume that's why she doesn't have the full picture here, and once again, Onslaught, after we explain it, completely makes sense. But this is really great, like the X-Men land, or some of them anyway, and I love how Alice describes the state of each of them, it's still reeling from Xavier's betrayal and transformation. Yeah, Archangel and Cannonball are defensive, Psylocke is furious, Scott and Jean are edgy and heartbroken, and they're there because they think there's something in a room beneath Muir Island, beneath the facility on Muir Island, that will be able to help with the onslaught situation. And there is. Charles has a secret basement. Like, damn, Moira, you gotta stop letting him do stuff like that. Wait a minute, he had a secret basement under the X-Mansion, that Xenox chamber as well. Do you think this one has a toilet? I think he has secret basements everywhere. I think there is a secret basement under your house. Oh, I, I gotta check that out. I'm, I'm a little concerned now. Well, you won't notice it because it's got psychic shielding. Oh. Well, then I won't worry about it. Car in every driveway, a chicken in every pot, a Charles Xavier in every sub-basement. <laughs> the basement's basement, but I'm never going back there again. I gotta say, I'm not gonna spoil anything current, but having read the, the Krakoa era of X-Men, and especially having read Inferno number one, this reads very differently. It really, really does, for real. Like... That's one of those retcons, the Moira McTaggart retcon in the current era of X-Men, that while it does introduce a number of logical inconsistencies, just adds so much cool context to past events that I'm completely okay with that. Yeah, um, it's been really interesting seeing how it played out, and I think is going to become only more so. But for now, we're, we're in the era where, where things are at least nominally as they seem, and Mora lets Scott and Jean into the, the sub-basement, and as the three of them enter the room, it scans their brainwaves, and based on the combination of people there, plays an automatic rec recording. Unlocking Xavier Protocol. Zero. 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 And there's a recording from Charles Xavier himself. 
Mora, Scott, Jean. If you three are seeing these images, then I have become a mortal threat to my X-Men. In this instance, I must be stopped by any means necessary. Some years ago, I made a study of various forms of possible defense against my own psychic abilities. The image next to me is that of an anti-psionic armor. The wearer should be protected from my talent. When I finish speaking, a blueprint for this armor will download. So, hey, Chuck's been trying to figure out a way that his X-Men can stop him if he ever goes bad. That seems like a great altruistic thing to do. Except when Archangel comes in, the new brainwaves and combination of people trigger another recording. Unlocking Xavier Protocol zero two one. And this one is directions for killing Wolverine. And I love the pacing of this. The like, oh, there is good within Xavier. Oh, oh no, he's he's been planning different ways to kill his students. Yeah, Jean is especially horrified as she says, every night. When Charles went to his study to work, he was thinking of ways to kill the X-Men. And every new combination of people triggers another protocol, so the addition of Cannonball and Psylocke brings up Cable, which is the last one that we see in any detail. Okay, I gotta say, this is a very strange way to decide which files to show, this attendance-based file system. like. I don't know, who do we see if fucking Mimic and Magma and Team America come in? Like, who do we learn to kill based on that combination of characters? Uh, that would be Pastepot Pete. Oh, is he a mutant? Is Xavier planning on how to kill non-mutants too? Miles, this was the mid-90s. It was the peak of X-Men Explosion. Everyone was a mutant. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think Cloak and Dagger were at this point, too. Or, I don't know, maybe. They went back and forth so many times. Worse than the Scarlet Wish and Quicksilver. But this is very strange. Like, I get it. It's a good, suspenseful reveal. It makes for good pacing. But what a bizarre method of deciding what files to open. We'll find out in X-Men 55 a little more in terms of whom the protocols cover. We know Xavier, we know Cable, and in addition to them... Got at the very least Archangel, Beast, Bishop, Cannonball, Cyclops, Gambit, Iceman, Psylocke, Rogue, Storm, and Wolverine. Not coincidentally, those are the current X-Men, of course. Yeah, I'm surprised that the list is that short. I would sort of think that he would have he would have included previous X-Men as well. Yeah, yeah, I think that might just be uh, convenient for the current era, but this is Xavier. He probably figured this stuff out for everybody, especially Namor. So, armed with the blueprints for the armor and a new level of distrust for their mentor, the X-Men head home. Which brings us to Fantastic Four number 415, An Enemy Among Us. This issue is written by Tom DeFalco, penciled by Carlos Pacheco, inked by Bob Wyacek, colored by Ariane Lenshoek, and lettered, as always, by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. So obviously, we don't normally cover Fantastic Four, but this is a central chapter in Onslaught, and I mean, we're covering basically all of Onslaught anyway. So let's dive into what's actually a really fun issue, and in fact, the penultimate issue of Fantastic Four, Volume 1. So you may recall Lil Charlie. Jay, who's Lil Charlie? Well... What the adults around Franklin Richards believe is that Lil Charlie is Franklin's imaginary friend. What we, the readers, know is that Lil Charlie is a child-looking projection of 
Charles Xavier, who has befriended Franklin and is now aggressively manipulating him while attempting to get a hang of talking like kids these days. It's so much fun. He also has Xavier's ridiculously arched eyebrows, which I appreciate. Yeah, he's he's creepy as hell. So at this point, Lil Charlie has helped Franklin understand his powers by having Franklin manifest a German circus from Charlie's memories. And this narration is kind of great. Sudden bursts of laughter mingle with gasps of amazement in this tiny Bavarian village, as the scents of freshly made pretzels and roasting sausages wrestle in the air. I, I want to go there. That sounds great. I, I want pretzel sausage wrestlemania. But which will win? Me, because I'm eating both of them. And while they're there, a Romani woman chides little Charlie for drawing an innocent child into all this, and it becomes clear that little Charlie is maybe also Lil Eric slash Lil Magnus slash Lil Max. This woman is Magda, Magneto's wife, who he split with after he murdered a bunch of people for killing their daughter Anya. Yeah, this is one of, I think, the earlier clues that Onslaught isn't just Xavier sort of decked out in, in Magneto drag, that there's some degree of, of Magneto actually in there. Well, at this point, the Fantastic Four come back from some adventure that we don't know anything about because we don't read a lot of Fantastic Four, and Franklin runs off to greet his returning family, leaving his psychic image behind. And that just leaves Lil Charlie looking creepily on as Tom DeFalco's glorious narration informs us. The time is now, and his course is set. Innocence and decency no longer have a place in his heart or soul. Tom DeFalco's writing is really fun. Like, it's so comic booky, but it's so earnest about it, and I have nothing bad to say about that. So there's a heartwarming reunion between Franklin and his parents, and we, we meet a chunk of the Fantastic Four's current extensive supporting cast, um, including a guy who they keep on just calling Lang, and I kept on being like, is, is, is he one of those Langs? Is he like Stephen Lang? Or No, he's, he's Scott Lang. He's Ant-Man. Okay, for disambiguation, uh, I decided I was just going to call this Lang Paul Rudd. So yeah, Paul Rudd is there. It might be Paul Rudd. He doesn't age. He seems really endearing and nice, so that's that's fine. There's also Lija the Skrull, who I found out is also known as the Laser Fist, but like laser has a Z in it, and that is an amazing title. I am sorry, Rusty Collins, aka Firefist. Her fist name is better. Hey, wait a minute. She's now pretended to be two separate people in order to date Johnny Storm, presumably each other's romantic rivals, which makes me think that she might be better suited to Matt Murdock. Uh, no, these were actually two successive people. Like, it didn't work out the first time, so she just did it again. The second woman is named, I believe, is it Laura Green? But her last name is definitely Green, and she's a Skrull, and that makes me happy. Yep. We also have Nathaniel Richards, who's an old-time traveler wearing a cool techno suit, who's very complicated continuity-wise, but he's there. And there is such great banter between all of these characters. There's just so much affection and rivalry and history. And it is kind of glorious and makes me want to read more Fantastic Four. Like, we talk a lot of shit about Mr. Fantastic, as a lot of people do. 
But he and Sue Richards are just great parents to Franklin, and they're great leaders I mean, of their team. No, they totally are here, at least. They're sometimes. Sue is a great parent. Reed often is a great parent, just not always. I feel like Reed has maybe suffered from some of the same stuff that um, that Charles has, where, like, it's a cool thing to do to make him retroactively more of a jerk. Although there was that one time in the Silver Age when he talked about how women should be kissed but not heard. So uh, I guess there's that. No, he was a raging asshole in the Silver Age. Okay, well, my point is he has he has some redeeming qualities and they are on display in this scene. Okay. Now, now their, their fun banter is interrupted by the arrival of Charles Xavier. Not Onslaught, just a very normal-looking Charles Xavier who is, is there... Because he, he feels Franklin is in danger, and as a young mutant, he ought to be with other mutants. And, and Charles is very generously insisting that he really ought to take custody of Franklin so that he can protect him and train him. And, like, none of the Fantastic Four or their allies are even remotely buying this for a second. The response is basically, no, absolutely not! Like, what the hell is wrong with you, man? This actually reminds me a lot of Chip Starsky's X-Men Fantastic Four miniseries that came out a little while ago. I, I love how bad Charles is at selling this. Like, he's a telepath. This should go better. We have learned that Onslaught perhaps lacks in any form of subtlety. Or social grace. Yeah, yeah, neither of those. So when Charles has, has been denied sufficiently, of course, Onslaught manifests. Henshin! He transforms! Uh, this is a different look for Onslaught, actually. His helmet used to be just a very angular Magneto helmet with a black mage-like void underneath. And this time it's sort of a flat red dome with the purple Magneto helmet patterning drawn onto it. What do you think between the two different looks? I think he's kind of working out his his own personal look. Uh, Okay, so it's not artistic inconsistency. It is, in fact, a canonical illustration of Onslaught's nascent state. Yeah, well, we're going to continue to see Onslaught's appearance evolve over the course of the series as he establishes himself more as sort of a distinct personality. This just feels like the first step of that. The Avengers and X-Men, seeking Franklin as we mentioned before, tried doing something very strange for Marvel characters and making a telephone call to the Fantastic Four. Uh Uh-uh, it was a video call. Okay, fair. Well, uh, in that case, they got to see Paul Rudd's never-aging face, but when the call was cut off, thanks to Xavier knocking Paul Rudd out, they figured they'd better get everybody's favorite giant teleporting dog with a tuning fork on his head, Lockjaw, to bring a subset of their team in. So it's Hawkeye, Crystal, Bishop, and Iceman. And I want to give a shout-out to Hawkeye's this-era costume, it's kind of a generic 90s head sock bodysuit pouches thing, but the neon fuchsia is just so aggressively neon. Like, I feel like this may be a battle strategy for him. You know, like they talk about how some female superheroes dress skimpy to distract their opponents. I think he's just trying to blind his opponents. Oh, you think this does that? I'm going to let you Google Golden Archer and see what comes up. I'm so excited to Google this after the episode. Anyway, they meet up with the woozy Fantastic Four, who have had their asses kicked by Onslaught. Uh, Interestingly, he didn't kill them. And everybody teams up to try to find Franklin before Onslaught gets away with him. And the Fantastic Four in particular 
are convinced that onslaught should be easy for them to deal with, that the threat is being exaggerated. Because look, you know, the X-Men are okay at what they do and all, but the Fantastic Four have taken on Galactus. Like, they are they are just a whole elite class above. Okay, it's, it's mainly, for what it's worth, the Human Torch that decides this, because Johnny Storm is kind of a douchebag, and I love him for it. Can Iceman communicate entirely in bad puns, and it's it's kind of painful. I'm just saying, if you're a superhero whose power is fire and you meet a superhero whose power is ice, or the other way around, I think that is a legal requirement. Anyway, back to Onslaught. So Onslaught fights his way through the Avengers and takes them out pretty summarily. Um, there's a, a telling bit where he decides not to kill Crystal. Again, we're getting bits of Magneto coming through. Crystal is his ex-daughter-in-law and the mother of his grandchild. There are a couple of panels next to each other during this scene where we sort of see through Onslaught's translucent psionic helmet, or maybe it's just a view inside it, but we see a left eye and a right eye. And one eye is clearly Xavier's with that distinctive arched eyebrow, and the other, with its floofy white eyebrow and lock of white hair barely visible in the corner, is clearly Magneto. Like, that is an excellent show-don't-tell moment. He also completely blows up Nathaniel Richards' time suit, so take an inscrutable and overly complicated drink. Or maybe just an elderly drink? Would that be an old-fashioned or a Milwaukee's best? No, no, I think I think this should be a drink whose contents you literally just can't quite describe while maintaining any kind of coherence or, or reasonable causality. The drink man was not meant to know? Yeah, kind of. Anyway, Bishop and the Invisible Woman uh, are in Franklin Richards' bedroom in their hide-and-seek game trying to find Franklin, and holy shit, this bedroom. Like, okay, there's a Batman the Animated Series poster on the wall, there's a Gargoyles poster on the wall, so Franklin's got good taste, but this rug, this immense goddamn rug. So he's got a huge Calvin and Hobbes rug, and this is interesting from a continuity and characterization perspective, because it has to be custom-made. Yeah, because Bill Watterson never licensed anything, right? Like, that's why all we have are fucking Calvin peeing on, well, I guess it would be Doctor Doom in this case. Yeah, there is no licensed, there there is no licensed Calvin and Hobbes merch. So, so yeah, they, they have to have gotten this, like, as a custom thing. Do you think Bill Watterson liked the Fantastic Four so much that he made it for them, or do you think the Fantastic Four are just intellectual property pirates? I don't. The only thing that Bill Watterson loves is cul-de-sac. What's cul-de-sac? It's a comic strip. Oh. Well, maybe this is the Marvel Universe, and the other thing he loves is the Fantastic Four. They're fantastic. I don't know. I I I feel like he would he would find them jejun. Well, regardless, Bishop and the Invisible Woman combine their powers into a sweet-ass dual tech and blow Onslaught out of his armor, leaving a naked Professor X. I guess take another drink? Maybe the last of that Milwaukee's best? Or, like, the Gears, Cat Meow, and Airplane from Jay's drink? It's it's Onslaught. Um, just, just keep going. Fair. This is, of course, a ruse. It turns out he's just trying to get Bishop's guard down so he can put the psychic whammy on this set of opponents, and it works. Yeah, and while he's fighting and once again taking down Mr. Fantastic, Lil Charlie lures Franklin away. He convinces Franklin to come with him, and he does this 
through persuasion, but he also does it with a um, a play from the, the White Witch's book, from the Chronicles of Narnia. He's got a special treat for Franklin, and boy, is this something. Yeah, it's not Turkish delight. Instead... It is a deck of amalgam overpower cards. So overpower cards were actually a thing back in the 90s. Like, that was a real game. They were made by Fleer, and they featured characters uh, eventually from Marvel, from DC, from Image. Amalgam, of course, was the Marvel-DC hybrid line that was out around this time. And Franklin goes for it, and Onslaught leaves carrying a tiny, smiling Franklin away. This really, really works, especially visually. I mean, we have this little innocent kid who's utterly oblivious to all this violence and carnage going on around him. All he sees is his friend, little Charlie, who's got some cool cards to show him, and they're playing, and they're having fun. And there's just such high emotional and logistical stakes everywhere, but in what Franklin's experiencing. And that image of Onslaught carrying Franklin away, just the contrast there, it's genuinely chilling. It's so creepy. It's it's like everyone else is in a superhero comic and they don't realize that what's actually going on is a ghost story. Oh, that's a great way of putting it. Yeah, nice. And that that's where the actual threat is. So, yeah, that's our Fantastic Four tie-in issue for Phase 1, and I think it's pretty good. It, f- it furthers the plot. It works as an issue of Fantastic Four. It's overall pretty well-written and pretty well-drawn. And I gotta say... With the yeah, every issue is somebody's first mandate. I was really surprised by how easy I found the complicated Fantastic Four stuff to follow. Like the character drama, and there's a large cast, is remarkably accessible to someone who's just coming in out of nowhere. Yeah, and we still have ongoing Fantastic Four plot lines going. Like, is Lydia going to tell Johnny Storm that she has now fooled him twice by pretending to be somebody he's dating? Yes, and it turns out he already knew. Yeah, because nobody else kisses like her. Oh, Johnny Storm, you sure are you. That's how he recognizes Spider-Man, too. (laughs) Oh, he's like Starfire from DC. Let's go from there to X-Factor number 125, The Ticking Clock. Written by Howard Mackey, penciled by Jeff Matsuda, inked by Al Milgram, colored by Glynis Oliver, and lettered, once again, by Richard Starkings and Comicraft, And this is a multiple of 25, so it's also double-sized. Wait, I thought they only did that for multiples of 50. It was the 90s, man. There's a lot going on in the 90s. We, being merciful and benevolent podcasters, are not going to stick you with a double-sized podcast. We just have a bunch of variant covers. And remember, those will be worth something someday. Mm Mm-hmm. Keep them. Let's talk about the cover of this issue, because it's actually pretty cool. I think a lot of people remember the old Neil Adams-drawn cover to X-Men number 58, like from the Silver Age. That's the one with Havoc charging forward, not in silhouette exactly, but sort of monochrome, and the X-Men trapped inside a dome, which is like shown inside the chest rings of his suit's energy. It's a great cover. It's iconic. And this one kind of does the same. It's Havoc in the center, with the rings radiating outward instead of kind of inward, and we see Dark Beast in one corner and Onslaught in the other corner. Dark Beast grinning madly, Onslaught looking super intimidating with some psychic side eye. He looks a little like one of those bubble machines. Oh, he kind of does, but it's cool. And this is Havoc in his new outfit that's going to be introduced, I believe, in this issue. Now, Dark Beast 
left with Onslaught when Onslaught first attacked the X-Men. He decided that he was no longer going to hitch his wagon to pretending to be 616 Hank McCoy and failing worse and worse at it. He was going to join up with the supervillain. I don't even think he cared about the Onslaught part. I think he just didn't want to spend another second having to fake his way through conversations with an overly enthusiastic Iceman. Agreed. So he and Onslaught are in the Brand Corporation factory. You may remember the Brand Corporation as the business that Hank McCoy used to work for when he accidentally dosed himself with some science juice and made himself gray and furry. And later blue and furry because of coloring details. They would later play a very significant role in in early X-Factor. And they pop up again periodically in in a number of different stories. They were in that Spider-Man Beast newspaper comic crossover. Yes, they were. Dark Beast in Onslaught X-Men offered to come up with some Dark Descendants for Onslaught, which is such a weirdly specific name for a group of minions. Um, I guess it's better than the Nasty Boys. Or is it worse? It does kind of imply that Legion's gonna show up. Oh, true. Yeah, Legion isn't around here. I guess he's, uh, he's, he's not really around at all at this point after Legion Quest. And maybe like Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch, but no, no, no. He's he's he. This is this is this is an, is an expansive found family sense of descendants. They all love each other so much. N- no, they don't. Anyway, one of the dark descendants is Fatal, the teleporting assassin lady we've seen before that posed as a waitress one time and that Bishop tried to kill. Uh, she teleports in to try to save Dark Beast from being strangled by Onslaught. As does a new dark descendant who we haven't really seen active yet. That being Havoc. Yeah, so his outfit here, I kind of dig it. It's uh, the black bodysuit, the containment suit that we've seen him wearing since he lost control of his powers. It's got red, like, techy, pouchy accents on it. He's got some red gauntlets, which, you know, it's the 90s, that's fine. But his head sock, his head sock makes no sense. It's the same kind of thing that Gambit or Cyclops wears in this era. But it's got all these pointy parts that really would just fall right off his face unless he glued them there. And it's got some parts that aren't even connected to the other parts, which implied he just, like, glued a big black triangle to the top of his forehead. But it looks awesome. Oh, there's definitely spirit gum involved in this. There definitely is. I mean, okay, remember, Dark Beast is from the Age of Apocalypse. Therefore, he worked indirectly for Apocalypse. And we know Apocalypse is all about snazzy corporate uniforms for his employees. Yeah, that's why the Age of Apocalypse is, of course, the glamist timeline. So, we have a couple of Dark Descendants, and Dark Beast also points out to Onslaught, because he doesn't want Onslaught to strangle him to death, that there's a mole inside X-Factor who's also working for him. That, of course, is random. He is on the X-Factor team now, um, with a very different look himself, and that team is fighting A sentinel. They already had a sentinel that they trained with, but it suddenly activated on its own and is attacking them, so they're fighting back, which means that Random is doing what Random often does and has transformed his arms into fleshy guns. Hairy fleshy guns. Yeah, there's something about the art in this. Like, okay, Random has a lot of body hair. That's fine. He was originally a parody of Lobo. But something about those arm guns having, like, arm hair on them is super gross, and I say this as a person who really likes body hair in general, it's just unsettling. Yeah, guns shouldn't have hair is a position I'm fairly confident that I I hold. It's never come up before in my life, but, like, I feel pretty certain about it. I will sign your petition. 
So this fight isn't going very well. Uh, as we know, Sentinels are kind of like ninjas in that how effective they are as opponents is entirely dictated by story. So Forge sends Mystique to fetch X-Factor's heavy hitter from downstairs, that being the recently acquired and semi-enslaved Sabretooth. Which, like, what good is that guy going to do against a Sentinel? I mean, yeah, Wolverine can cut Sentinels up, but Wolverine's got adamantium claws. Sabretooth very specifically does not. I assume he'll just disturb it until it leaves on its own. He'll just, like, flirt creepily with it until the Sentinel just decides to get the hell out of there? Yeah. I mean, okay, that's reasonable. Mystique does indeed meet up with Sabretooth, starting with a gun pointed at his head. But you ain't going to do it. No more than I'm going to rip that pretty little head off your shoulders. Because you want to stay right here. This is the best place for both of us. A place where we can hide in plain sight and bide our time until we see which way the wind is blowing. You got your agenda, just like I got mine. And remember, Mystique and Sabretooth have a lot of history, most of it pretty unpleasant. Also, they have a son together. Very unpleasant. Fucking Graydon Creed. I hate that guy. Yeah, he might be the worst part of their shared history, like, including all the murder. I know. So they head upstairs to help out with the fight, until suddenly, Fatal shows up out of nowhere and teleports them both away into the backup story that we'll get to later. She then heads upstairs and teleports the Sentinel away. She just steals the Sentinel directly from them. Sure, why not? As she does, she makes a token effort to retrieve Dark Beast's other Dark Descendant, Random. You look like my type, Bounty Hunter. Wanna jump in? No, I'm exactly where I belong. Are you now? Well, isn't that interesting? And we've seen Random go back and forth and back and forth a number of times. He has been a double agent against X-Factor more than once, but he also really cares a lot about... Well, okay, let's be real. He doesn't give a shit about the team, but he does care about Polaris. So, Polaris and the rest of the team track the Sentinel to the Brand Corporation factory, which is where... Dark Beast and company are holed up. And they're still rolling investigation checks and checking for traps when Fatal and a brainwashed Havoc blow the door open. Okay, guys, this is an X-Factor comic. Why are you blowing the door open when there's a perfectly serviceable wall right next to it? Well, that's how you can tell this is brainwashed Havoc and not X-Factor Havoc. Oh, oh, good point. It's a tell. Right. Polaris is horrified. She thought Havoc just wandered off to be a jerk and brood, but now he's a brainwashed villain, and she promises to do everything she can to help him free his mind. Just like that time with Eric the Red. And that time with the Siege Perilous's personality rewrite. And that time with Madeline Pryor. And that time with Malice. Ah, uh, that boy needs to change the password on his brain. Right? Like, his unstable turns in the most recent run of Astonishing X-Men and in Hellions, like, after so much of this, after getting continually brainwashed and or possessed and or rewritten, like, I can understand him having a rough time with, well, everything. Now, there's not that much time to dwell on that because there's another unpleasant revelation to be had during the fight X-Factor learns that Random has been working for the bad guys for a while, and also that he's secretly a skinny kid with floppy 90s hair. 
I really enjoy that when he gets zapped protecting Polaris from a blast from Havoc and thus loses control of his powers and loses cohesion and turns into a kid, that not only does he become small and scrawny and younger, but his bald head just, like, sprouts that 90s haircut that fucking everybody had, that center-parted, third rock from the sun, floppy do. He also abruptly has a skateboard. Not pictured. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, as this goes on, Polaris does manage to break through just a tiny, tiny bit with tears in her eyes to Havoc, who, if not changing sides, at least stops his attack, at which point she magnetically slams him through a brick wall because it was all a ruse because she knows that as much as she loves this guy, what she loves even more is not having evil villains do terrible things, as the team finds out they're going to do. Right, because Forge has snuck away into the building uh, through a remarkably spacious air shaft, and he has discovered a warehouse full of dozens and dozens of reprogrammed Sentinels awaiting launch. Okay, I have a question here. Fatal just went way out of her way to steal an Sentinel, one single Sentinel from X-Factor. Why? There were like fucking 60 Sentinels here. It really ties the room together. Oh yeah, good point, good point. Uh, Forge manages to tell the team what's going on before himself being teleported away yet again. And the Sentinels, despite our hero's best efforts, all launch. Now, we know this is part of Onslaught's big plan. We've seen Onslaught basically collecting the Sentinels. Uh, what we don't know is what they are going to be doing, and we're not going to find out for a little bit, because there is a second backup plot in X-Factor 125. That being a story called Freefall, written by Howard Mackey, penciled by Stefano Raphael, inked by Al Milgram, colored by Glennis Oliver and Kevin Summers, and lettered by, of course, Richard Starkings and Comicraft. So, Miles, I noticed there is a dangling plot thread, because Fatal teleports Mystique and Sabretooth away. What happens to them? So it turns out she just teleported them into the top of a very, very tall vertical sewer tunnel, and so they're just falling and falling and falling, like that scene from Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. Aw. They're rescued, thankfully, by Dark Beast. He's wearing his uh, Dark Beast banded metal pants, even though he looks like regular Beast. I guess he figures there's no point in deceiving anyone at this point, and he might as well just wear what he's most comfortable in, which is metal pants. Dark Beast tries to recruit these villains by disabling their government control devices. Remember, they each have implants or chips or collars or something that prevent them from turning on X-Factor, from turning on the government. And in exchange, he just wants them to do one little tiny thing, which is to kill Forge and join Onslaught. Because this is where Forge was teleported to in the last story. And Sabretooth and Mystique consider it. We wouldn't be working for the government anymore. Wouldn't be sanctioned operatives. Wouldn't be able to use them for our own purposes. No, we would not. And they attack Dark Beast, who teleports away before they can kill him. So, there you have it. Honestly, kind of weird that was a backup story instead of just a side plot, but eh, what can you do? And that brings us to the climax of Phase 1 of Onslaught, X-Men number 55, Invasion. Written by Mark Wade, penciled by Andy Kubert, inked by Dan Panosian, colored by Joe Rosas, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. And this issue is great. I love it so much. So, 
Last we saw Franklin Richards, Onslaught had kidnapped him, and what Onslaught has been up to since is teaming up with, with Lil Charlie, who is of course also part of Onslaught, to try to convince Franklin to join them. And I love these scenes. I love that the immensely, ludicrously hulking Onslaught, Hubert just draws the hell out of Onslaught, is holding this tiny, tiny child, and then Lil Charlie is just standing there in like a nearby planetoid, but both Onslaught and Lil Charlie have these same, like, bold-bordered, glowing yellow speech bubbles to make it very clear that they're the same entity, despite the fact that they have different styles of speech. Like, it really does show the sheer psionic might of Onslaught, that he can just be, like, two entities at the same time without even breaking a psychic sweat. Franklin, no one's gonna hurt you, pal. No one can hurt me. Do you know why? Because I'm a part of Onslaught, and you can be too. I... I don't wanna. No. Charlie, I... I thought you were my friend. He is, child. We're both looking out for you. You have been for a while now. You are important to me, Franklin. I marvel at the fact that you could do almost anything you imagined. We're much alike, Franklin. You and I, we're both special, you know? And a lot of people are afraid of special kids and their powers. Your own daddy tried to shut your powers down once. He was so scared of you. Remember that? Well, Onslaught can fix it so no one has to be scared anymore. No one. With your help, child, I can build a place that will keep us safe. Concentrate, Franklin. Concentrate. Meanwhile, the Sentinel army we saw taking off in X-Factor is headed to New York City, where the X-Men, the Avengers, and the Fantastic Four are gathering to try to control the damage and hopefully confront Onslaught. Okay, yeah, but can we talk a little bit about all of these Sentinels just hanging out in New York City? They look like fucking giant pests just messing with the city. There's one perching on the edge of the Empire State Building. There's one cocking its head confusedly at the Statue of Liberty. This kind of reminds me, do you remember that old kid's book, Caps for sale with all of the bad monkeys in it? I do not. Oh, well, it's kind of like that, except giant robots. But it's it's really fun, actually, and Kubert does a good job of, like, giving them personality while still making them super intimidating. Yeah, the, the narration tells us that they're terrorizing the city, sealing everyone inside and stuff like that, but they, they do look like they're just kind of hanging out. Yeah, they're just being, you know, hoodlums. Big purple robotic hoodlums. So one team heads to deal with the Sentinels, and the other goes off to Reed's lab, the sort of more science among them, to construct some kind of weapon and some kind of tracking device to help them find Onslaught. And man, it is legit stirring to see all these members of the X-Men, the Fantastic Four, and the Avengers standing together on a rooftop, looking at the challenge they face, looking all heroic and iconic. And like, when Kubert draws their fights against the Sentinels in this issue, that is solid. Kubert really conveys just the power in their punches and their blasts, and there's this super athletic, acrobatic way that they spin out of getting attacked. Like... Everything just feels really larger than life. Everything feels so goddamn heroic, for lack of a better term. 
We also get another glimpse of the blueprint of the armor from the Xavier Protocols, and less so in the version we saw in Excalibur, but this one really reminds me of the armor that Charles Xavier wears when he's a psychic projection of himself. Yeah, totally. The version we saw before in Excalibur actually reminded me more of what Xavier himself wore when he went into battle against Magneto during Fatal Attractions. Yeah. Now, back on the street while everyone's fighting, uh, Gambit sees Rogue and Joseph together, because remember, the Avengers picked them up, they're now traveling with the Avengers, and he is sufficiently catty about them that Iceman refers to the trio as Archie, Betty, and Veronica, which I really appreciated. <laughs> I know, it's freaking great. I kind of love 90s Iceman. But they can't play out the love triangle, because a giant citadel appears in Midtown Manhattan. It is awesome. It's very, it's very, like, Paul Smith alien civilization-y. It reminded me a lot of Earth 4935, Cable's Future, or Earth 295, The Age of Apocalypse. It's very much that apocalypse architecture, which makes sense, because we know that Onslaught was inspired in his plans by what he got out of Bishop's head about the Age of Apocalypse, where a mutant took everything over. And I mean, shit, Andy Hubert actually drew Amazing X-Men and Age of Apocalypse, so it makes sense that he would be able to evoke that world. And on top of the building is Onslaught doing what Onslaught does best, declaiming like a motherfucker. Hollow Sabians, hear the words of Onslaught. From this day forward, the humans shall no longer inherit the Earth. No more shall mutant kind be so savagely oppressed. For today, march the ultimate ascendants of the Homo Superior Race. People of the world, behold my mighty hand! And the narration. Oh, the narration. The shockwave hits like a comet. With a gesture chillingly casual, Onslaught blankets Manhattan with a coruscating blast of unearthly energy, an electromagnetic pulse so fierce as to uproot the very bedrock of the island. Across the city it sparks explosions. It shatters buildings. It deadens every erg of power in its wake. With a cold and exacting finality, it destroys circuitry. It destroys armor. It destroys hope. And there is this double page spread with little inset detail panels that is earned. It is awesome in the literal denotative sense. This is breathtaking, just the level of casual devastation. There's this one inset panel that is a couple of surgeons looking up from the surgery they're doing on a patient in this suddenly dark room. Like, this conveys power. One of our listeners described this crossover as a summer blockbuster, and yes, that can be bad, but it can also be very good. Summer blockbusters are good at just evoking intense reactions in the audience, and stuff like this really does. I also have to wonder, so this is Onslaught unleashing a devastating EMP across New York. That really reminds me of the EMP that Magneto unleashed in Fatal Attractions. That has to be a deliberate callback, right? I would expect, yeah. As for why Onslaught does this, why he has locked down New York with his army of pesky sentinels, why he's shattered Manhattan with an EMP, based on what we know of Onslaught's plans, I can only assume this is specifically to stir up fear in New Yorkers that he can then psychically feed on. 
It also disables the people who are rising to stop him. I mean, it wrecks the Fantastic Four's defenses. It sends the Blackbird plummeting out of the sky. It does, yeah. Uh, everybody's fine, but um, yeah, just again, that level of devastation is really, really sold. Like, you breathe a sigh of relief when you see the X-Men having survived the crash. And that's phase one, save for a brief tag in which Ozymandias, uh, with his, his powers of prophecy, gets to see Onslaught's final form. Yeah, he carves a little stone statue of a very different-looking Onslaught that we'll talk more about soon. Uh, do you think that if you have the gift of prophecy, you just give yourself a lot of spoilers? Like, I remember one time at Dark Horse, I was w really excited to play Mass Effect 3, but then I walked by the computer of somebody who was working on the Mass Effect 3 art book, and I accidentally spoiled the final boss for myself. Do you think that happens with Ozymandias? I don't think Ozymandias plays Mass Effect. Well, he should. It's a really good series. Even Andromeda, damn it. I'll stand up for that one. So, yeah, that's, um... That's the climax of phase one of Onslaught. So, Jay, now that we're, I'm not going to say halfway through, because phase two has, I think, more stuff in it, but now that we're at the halfway point of the story, what do you think? Honestly, and this is going to sound weird, I'm a little frustrated that it's not bigger. My problem with the tie-ins is that they feel really comparatively anticlimactic. We've got this big, central, rising action, and I want to see more ripples from that. And we certainly will in phase two. Like, we're going to see random heroes fighting sentinels until we never want to say the word sentinel again. But it would be nice to see stuff other than that have larger reverberations. What I'd really like to see is something that works like the original Inferno, where the tie-ins really keep the distinct feel of their own books and how an and, and onslaught you know, has different impact depending on, on the sphere of the heroes in them. And I'm really excited to talk about some of the Phase 2 stuff with that in mind. Which tie-ins work, which tie-ins don't. For me, I think it really depends. Like, the central story, the actual X-Men stuff, or Fantastic Four stuff, or to a lesser degree Avenger stuff, is super solid. And I think I almost wish it was more focused, almost the opposite of what you said, although I totally see where you're coming from. And maybe that's just because the tie-ins haven't done it for me as much. Again, we'll talk a lot more about that in Phase 2, but so far in Phase 1, I think we can both agree, super solid central story, right? Yeah, absolutely. And with that, you've got questions. Ophelia's Ghost asks on Tumblr, If Onslaught had a musical number in a hypothetical 90s X-Men musical, what would the lyrics slash tone be? So I have had a single answer to this in my head for like two years. Um, and you can find out what that is if you continue listening past the, uh, outro of this, this episode. Intriguing. Well, I don't have anything that mysterious, but for me, I would say, like, a 14-minute progressive metal pseudo-ballad with each section and its unique time signatures and vocal style and instrumentation being very different and representing a different conflicting aspect of Onslaught's personality, and the sections just kind of progressing along his villain trajectory until it was just this incredibly, like, overwrought, symphonic, melodic, death metal, death metal crescendo at the end. It should be excessive. You should be exhausted by the time you get done listening to this song. Catechus Dramaticus asks on Tumblr, what do you think it says about Onslaught being such a botched character, and yet he keeps coming back? 
Do you think there is some staying power to him, or do you think storytellers are trying to fix him? Or is it more about what he represents? So Onslaught is a mess of a crossover in some ways, but its good elements, like we've mentioned, are good. And a lot of those good elements are good because they're based around what I think is a very solid concept. Xavier over the years keeps getting rubbed in the narrative mud because of how saintly his core concept is. He's full of hope and compassion, and so the idea that there's a dark side to all that, a dark side because of all that, and that that dark side kind of has good intentions in a manner of speaking, I think that's compelling. He's like a personified virtue flaw from Exalted or something. And the idea that that dark side is something that's based purely on frustration, which makes sense, and has become something external, I think that works way better than, I don't know, say, Xavier's dark side being just him wearing a cape and sexually abusing a teenager in the X-Men Micronauts miniseries that one time. And then there was that time that the Red Skull stole Professor X's brain after Professor X got killed and transplanted that brain into his own head and then became the Red Onslaught. Like, that was a little ridiculous, but in a way that made a sort of ghoulish sense. Like, I wasn't a giant fan of the Axis, which is to say Sixus, crossover, but I don't know, that was kind of fun. I want to say, though, no spoilers, but Cy Spurrier's Way of X and X-Men The Onslaught Revelation have a really cool take on Onslaught that manages to keep the core concept completely to tell us some new things about Xavier and Magneto and Onslaught itself without having to deal with all the complicated crossover baggage. I just, I don't know, I guess I just really like the idea of Xavier's dark side being born of good intentions way better than retcons that just show Xavier to have actually been an out-of-character asshole in the past, like in Deadly Genesis or something like that? I think people think he looks cool. We are a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. Let's do a 90s version of the angry Claremontian narrator. Aw, look at you optimistically preparing to confront a hostile world replete with forces bent on your destruction. As if such insignificant parties as Dave Dunlap and Adam Criswell could pray to stand up to such chaos and malice. Your misplaced hope would almost be cute if it weren't so damn jejun. And the mic now, of course, goes to Onslaught. You are important to us, children. Your power, your potential, should not be misused by those false friends and family who dare call themselves true. If you don't believe me, just listen to your friend, Lil J. Don't worry, Aaron M. It's okay, Vicky Chu. You'll be just fine here. Onslaught is the coolest! He knows how to skateboard, and he really gets people like us! The other kids may not see how special we are, or how cool it is to be really, really into X-Men, but Onslaught understands. Yes, Lil Jay is correct, for we are peers, pals. Our might and our fury are without equal, Vicky and Aaron. Our alliance will be truly cataclysmic, 
Once you accept that I am your ally and friend. Hey, look, fellow kids. Onslaught brought... Ooh, what are the kids into these days again? Snapchats, right? Onslaught brought us all some premium Snapchats. Would a bad guy bring Snapchats? Golly, no. Only one such as Onslaught would pluck Snapchats from the very ether as a gift to you. As a symbol of our shared pain, and of the dark future we shall bring to this blighted land. And then afterwards he promised to show us a real cool trick we can do with some matches and a can of WD-40. Isn't it great to have friends? And electromagnetic pulses! And with that... This special collectible episode of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes of our collectible show come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode and original illustrations by David Wynn, this week joined by variant cover artists Dylan McConus and Jen Vaughn, along with our very special sketch cover. Grab yours today. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay in the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com and get as many copies of this episode as possible. Special thanks to Steve Pence for his voice in the following segment, and to Adam Faruqi for his voice and production skills. Next week, it's Onslaught Phase 2. Makeover time! Strangely quiet, but now the storm simply rests to strike again. Standing, waiting, I think of him, I think of him. Strange, this onslaught, he leaves the room, yet remains, he lingers on. Something stirs me to think of him, I think of him. He died in space, but somehow he escaped. And now a guy has come who has his cape. He has his cape. He has Magneto's scarlet cape. That cape he used to flourish long ago. That cape that gave him brotherhood, he'd never know. How can they see this guy and miss that bride? He has his cape. He has Magneto's scarlet cape. That cape in which he'd posture and declaim. That cape that saw his triumphs and his greatest shame. How can I see this onslaught in his scarlet cape? Aloft or Citadel, he made his debut. He may have been a villain, but I rooted for him too. He has his cape, he has.
his magnetical scarlet cape, that cape that saw him wild and fancy free. A cape he'd long abandoned, never knew I longed to see him wear again at last his scarlet cape. Imagine him a hero. I longed for the day he ditch his white coat leader robes would just have let him stay he has his cape he has made me no a cape that saw me a cape that first 